Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Good morning. We are in our second week of a series in Psalm 23, which, let's face it, is deeply significant and personally profound for many people. And when you come across these passages in the Bible and you try to prepare to preach on them, let me tell you it is daunting. Because I am about to handle a passage that for some of you will be so close to your heart that I'm a little bit nervous. For some of you, it will have sustained you through incredibly difficult times. For some of you, it will be the only bit of scripture you really feel like you know off by heart. For some of you, it will take you back to childhood memories. For others of you, it takes you to the most significant moments of your life. And so, I'm pretty daunted this morning, but these six verses which we're looking at are so rich and so full of meaning that they will last us a lifetime. There's an argument to say, if you're only ever going to read one bit, this is enough. One theologian says, the entire Bible centers on Psalm 23 and the four words in the middle of it, which are, you are with me. Five words. You are with me. Four words. You are with me. (sighs) Psyched myself out with counting. You are with me. You are with me. It's pretty good, isn't it? The whole of scripture centers. So these are rich verses. And last week, Rachel did an absolutely astounding job of starting us off. And if you weren't here, let me encourage you. It's on YouTube. It's on your podcast platform of choice. It is well worth half an hour of your time to go back and listen. If you listen to your podcasts on 1.2 speed like I do, it's even less than half an hour. So that's fine. And, uh, but genuinely really helpful. And Perhaps the thing we need to remember as we come this morning to read it again is that the background of this slide is far more what we should have in mind than whales. The picture in our mind's eye when we read Psalm 23 should not be the Yorkshire Dales. It should be barren, dry grassland. Because did you know that Israel does not look like Wales? It does not look like Massam, Grassington, or your favorite Yorkshire Dales tourist point of choice. It looks very different. And life, if we're honest, feels a lot more like that background than lush green pastures most of the time. Can I get an amen? Life feels a lot more like dry, rocky, rough paths than lush green meadows. And if it doesn't for you right now, you're in a lush green meadow, hallelujah, there will be moments in your life that feel like rough, dry paths that you do not know your way through. And it's in these moments that Psalm 23 comes into its own. And so shall we read together the chapter Psalm 23? Anybody take their postcard last week? Anybody had a go at getting it into your head? If you weren't here, we have three different designs of postcard. One one looks like this. One looks like this. Everyone now, one looks like this. Ah, 
And you could come and get your own. And the challenge is, can we all learn this passage of Scripture over the next four weeks? Feel very free to read along with me if you want to swat up on your learning. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I learnt this and got points for it at a club called Juno's at the church I grew up in. But I read it and learnt it in the New International Version 1984, which is an excellent year, by the way. And in that version, which many of you will also know, it says, He restores my soul. Anybody with me? Every time I get to that line, I'm like, oh, I've got to wrestle myself for refreshes. Because I learned it in restores. If you grew up with the New King James Version, if you are an English Standard Version devotee, you too have He Restores My Soul. But in 2011, the NIV Translation Committee, a group of talented and super smart with enormous brains, men and women who know Hebrew and Greek like the back of their hands, they read it and decided that they should change it. They looked at the Hebrew word and they said, you know what, restores is good, but we've got a better suggestion. Shall I go to the handheld mic? Because it's echoing for me real bad. Is it echoing for you? I don't know if the pickup's too great, but... And so they sat around and they decided, let's change... The word. And it didn't change the meaning, but whereas whenever you're translating language, you end up with, you're trying to map one word which has a host of meanings onto a word that communicates that in another language. Those of you who are bilingual will be familiar with these challenges. And they've decided they moved from restore to refresh. And here's my suggestion. I mean, I don't know any of them personally. I've not emailed them to ask, but this is why I think they did it. The word restores could mean two things. It could mean it's been taken from you and it's being given back to you. Or it could mean it's being brought back to newness. And that's a, that's a pretty big range of meaning when we're talking about our soul. Has it been taken and being given back to us, or is it being refreshed as the committee decided it was being used? And so they changed it, I think, to remove this ambiguity because the reality is our soul has not been taken from us. Our soul can be beaten up, it can be old, it can be tired, it can be withered like a raisin, but it doesn't get stolen from us to some other place and need giving back to us, like the word restore could suggest. But life and the chaos of life means that our souls are in continual need of bringing back to newness, of being refreshed. 
And so the word refresh is the one we've got. The word refresh is the one I'm going to say quite a lot today. He refreshes my soul. And refresh is itself a word with many particular meanings. I use the refresh button on my computer when I'm waiting to try and buy tickets for things. Is the queue open yet? You refresh the screen to see if there's some more messages. It's not that kind of refresh. It's not the, oh, is it new? It's more the refreshment. Come with me. Like when you go out for dinner to a curry house or a Chinese restaurant or a Thai restaurant and at the end of the meal they bring you a plate and on the plate are some plastic packets and in the plastic packets are some insanely hot flannels. And if you're like me, you pop it open, take it out, throw it on your face and go, ah, that's the refreshing in mind. The face which is tired, has been sweating, has been working through the meal in that instant, ah, is refreshed. The sweat is wiped away. The hard work of having eaten your meal is cleansed. The stains are removed. It brings life back to your tired face at the end of a difficult meal. You know that feeling? He refreshes my soul. Next time you're out, you can join me. should probably let the restaurateurs of Harrogate know. The word restore, which is a really valid word, is not, as we might be familiar with in our digital age, the, my phone is broken, it has a bug, I need to restore my last backup so it works. Press the button, back it comes. It's not, I've lost my document because my computer crashed again, and it restores the last time I saved it. It's not that instant restoration. It's the restoration of a master craftsman who takes a polishing cloth and wipes the dirt and the dust and the grime off of a beautiful piece of furniture. It's the restoration of a talented craftsperson who dusts down the cogs, replaces the broken bits and brings the life and beauty out of something without negating the story that's brought it to that place. It brings life back. And so I've titled this morning, just to confuse you, Renewal. Which I think conveys this in another way. It's the making new without disregarding what's happened. God does not want to wipe your memory. He wants to renew you. God does not erase the totality of everything that's ever happened to you but he works for good in all things for those who love him and this is the pattern of God throughout scripture we find multiple stories of him renewing souls we find multiple stories of him renewing his people from where the people of God dwindle to tiny numbers in complete brokenness we find him renew them bringing back we find at the end of the story him renewing creation making it new. Psalm 23 is dynamic. It depicts for us a journey. There is movement. It is a poem which is brutally honest about life. There are valleys which feel so dark they're like death. There are moments in life where you sit and it feels like you are surrounded by enemies. 
There are moments in life which are deeply painful, are very difficult, and Psalm 23 does not duck that or hide from it, but puts it front and center. And as we read it, we remember that our hearts long for one who will provide for us, who will protect us, and will be present with us. Psalm 23 was written by... David. King David. I don't know what would be on your list of things that you might like to renew or restore or refresh your soul this morning, but I can make a pretty good guess that King David had access to all of them. He had money on tap, servants at his beck and call. He had an army at his disposal. He lived in a palace. He had multiple people he could have sex with. He had power. All the things that the human soul can long for. Money, sex, and power. And yet when he writes a song about what refreshes his heart, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Jim Carrey, the famous legendary comic actor, once said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. He refreshes my soul. There's a lady called Ian Hersey Ali who I've listened to talk a little bit recently. And this is her journey. She was born in Somalia, a Muslim, became super devout before realizing it was entirely bankrupt and joining in with the New Atheist Movement. She's a friend of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, uh, other people in that movement. She wrote a book which was a bestseller about the evils of religion. She's just shot back into the public eye because she wrote an essay entitled Why I Am Now a Christian. You should read it. And I don't know the state of her heart, and I read her essay, and I think, "Mm, it's not quite what I'd want to write. But there's one line in it that makes you go, yeah. She's glimpsed what we're glimpsing this morning, and it's this line. She says, I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace, unendurable, and very nearly self-destructive. She says, I now go to church week by week and learn a little bit more. It's a story of a young man who wanted to test what restores our soul, what really brings life meaning. And he went out and he did all of these things, money, sex and power that the human soul longs for. He pursued knowledge and gained qualifications and degrees from significant universities. He achieved success He was the first at basically everything he put his hand to. He had numerous sexual encounters, really went after the hedonistic lifestyle, lived in the big cities of his day, Rome and Milan. He lived the life pursuing pleasure, pursuing satisfaction, but ultimately found it bankrupt. And one day he heard a voice saying, take up and read. And he picked up the Christian scriptures and as he read them, he encountered Jesus Christ dropped it all and chose to follow him. It happened in the 4th century AD. His name was Augustine. 
he went on to define most of Western Christianity's theology and doctrine. And his most famous sentence is this. You, God, have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. My friends, many people have set out in life to find what will refresh, renew and restore their soul. And time and time again, what they've encountered is the same truth that King David encounters. He refreshes my soul. He refreshes my soul. How? Well, Psalm 23 gives us three stunning pictures of how the Lord refreshes our soul. The first is that he is the shepherd who provides. The second is that he is the companion who protects. And the third is that he is the host who is present. The Lord is here to refresh our souls this morning in each of these three ways. Let me show you. In Mark chapter 6, no, Matthew chapter 6, we find these words on the mouth of Jesus. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon... David's son, the greatest of all Israel's kings, in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom, And his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus tells us that God is our shepherd who provides. Here's the reality, friends. Our souls, they get frayed. Our souls get worn. And they get worn and frayed by two things, I would suggest. Number one, a fear of lack. And number two, a lust for plenty. Often, in my experience, both at the same time. I get scared that I'm not going to have enough while at the same time really wanting far more than I need. But the teaching of Jesus says, why would you worry about these things? Won't he provide for you? I've sat with multiple people this week who have listed off the chaos of life to me. Burst pipes, building work on houses that should have taken eight weeks but took eight months. Cancer diagnoses, illness, sickness, challenges with children. But every single one of them, followers of Jesus, have said towards the end, yeah, we lost all our stuff, but it's only stuff, isn't it? Or 
yeah, it's really hard, but God is still with us. And I've sat there going, I'm supposed to do that bit for you. <laughs> You're supposed to tell me how bad it is, and, and then I encourage you. I mean, I've read the book. This is how it works. And I just leave them talking, and they finish by going, but God has it in hand. God has led me through the cancer process. Though we sofa surfed with three children for a whole month, God looked after us. The church put us up. It's remarkable. God is the shepherd who provides. And Psalm 23 depicts, as Rachel showed us last week, just this quiet trust. A simple, quiet trust in a shepherd who provides. The faithful surrender to his leading care. Let me tell you, if you worry about what you will eat, if you worry about what you will drink, if you worry about what you will care, your soul will shrivel and die. But when we can trust quietly and tenaciously in him, we will find that it refreshes our soul. Amen? God is the shepherd who provides. It's the expert polishing off the layers of grime. Picture that old piece of furniture slowly coming back to life as the expert gets his hands on it, releasing the stuff that shouldn't be on it, the the grips and the damage that comes. As we choose to surrender, as we make that decision to trust in the shepherd who provides, the hand of God is washing grime and dirt and dust off of us. It's like that moment when you had a curry that's just too strong and the sweat hasn't quite left your face and they come with a plate and on the plate are plastic packets and in the plastic packets are flannels that are insanely hot but you go for it anyway and as we trust the shepherd who provides he refreshes our souls. The second picture that we're given in Psalm 23 is the companion who protects. And I want to take you very quickly to John chapter 18. And I don't think I'm going to read it all, but essentially the story is this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night that he's about to be arrested, he goes with his friends to a hillside to pray. And a crowd turn up with torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus says to them, who is it that you want? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. And they cower away from him. He says again, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. Big crowd, flaming torches, swords, clubs, angry. And Jesus, in verse 8 of John 18, says these words. I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. John gives us some commentary. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. In Jesus' most vulnerable moment, he has just sweat blood because the strain of the situation has caused the capillaries in his forehead to burst with stress and anxiety, and his sweat is infused with blood. The crowd come for him. On a dark night, out 
of the city. And yet in the middle of that unthinkable stress, that unthinkable strain, in the shadow of the beatings and the trial and the crucifixion that he knows is coming his way, Jesus doesn't protect himself. He protects those who are with him. Let these men go. My friends, nothing, absolutely nothing can snatch you from the hand of Jesus. If in his most vulnerable moment, he still protects those he's with, how much more so now? The shepherd who provides, the companion who protects. And the third picture is the host who is present. I don't know if you've ever read. We we read the beginning of Psalms often. At the end, we find an incredible picture. A table laid before, a cup overflowing, a head anointed with oil. Goodness and love following the psalmist all the days of his life. We find a host who is present with the psalmist. And ultimately, friends, what renews our soul, what brings refreshment to our souls is not what God can do for you. It's not what God can do for you. It's him. He refreshes my soul. Do you see the difference? It's not his provision refreshes my soul. It's not his care refreshes my soul. It's not his protection refreshes my soul. It's not him answering my prayers refreshes my soul. He refreshes my soul. Friends, there are things we can know that refresh our soul. There are truths that we can take to heart that bring refreshment to our souls. There is one that we can know personally who refreshes our souls. But even more than that, there is one whom we encounter and our souls are refreshed. When we truly encounter the presence of God, we find peace for our souls. God is present in two types of way. The first is his omnipresence. Those of you in secondary school, you're all in the pool, that doesn't work today. Those of you in secondary school doing your GCSEs and all the rest of it, we do our omnis about God. Omnipresent, present everywhere. There is nowhere we can flee from the presence of God. If I go to the depths of the sea, you are there. But there's another way in which God is present. And it's his manifest, his revealed, tangible presence. You ever walk into a place and go, wow, God's here. You ever had one of those moments? Just go back for a moment. If you haven't, this would be a good moment to say, God, what's he talking about? I'd like one of those.
when the temple construction was finished. And David's son Solomon dedicated it. A whole congregation surrounded the temple. And the priests came to it. And they sang, the Lord is good. His love endures forever. And as they sang, a cloud came from heaven, filled the temple, such that the priests hit the floor and couldn't do what they were supposed to do. They had detailed instructions that cover pages and pages of your Bible. Yet on the moment the temple was dedicated, the presence of God filled the temple such that they could do nothing but kneel before the King of Kings, the Majestic One. It's the manifest presence of God. I was reading a story this week of someone who had been present in the Azusa Street Pentecostal revivals in the early 20th century. Beginning of the 20th century, very few people would talk about the Holy Spirit, very little demonstration of his presence. Some stuff happened on a street called Azusa, changed the face of the world to the point that today, one in 12 people on the planet, not just Christians, one in 12 people on the planet, call themselves a spirit-filled Christian. And I was reading the account, and the story was, I, I was a child in the Azusa Street revivals. I said, we used to play hide-and-seek in the clouds of the presence of God that used to fill the building whilst they were preaching. We can excuse mentally, oh, but that was before Jesus. That's the temple. But hide-and-seeking clouds that appear in a church gathering sounds quite fun. I'm in. I'm I'm quite big. It's quite difficult to hide. We'd need some pretty sizable clouds. Moses used to have to put a veil on his face after he had been in the tangible presence of God because his face was radiant. And then he came down out of the manifest presence of God. He put a veil over because the radiance would fade. And he didn't want people to get disappointed that maybe God was leaving them. So he covered his face. There's a presence of God and we should expect this, that when you encounter a supernatural divine being who created all things, flung stars into space and maintains all things, sustains all things by the power of his word, it should do some crazy things. The human frame is fragile and weak. When we encounter God, it changes things. Let me tell you, I would much rather that my soul was refreshed than I played hide and seek in a cloud. I would much rather that my soul was refreshed rather than my face glowed. I would much rather that my soul was refreshed rather than any other manifestation of the Holy Spirit happened around me. But I'll take the manifestations too, if that's what it means for God to be in the room. On the 8th of February 2023, a chapel service at Asbury University in Kentucky didn't end. You familiar with this story from last year? group of students have their daily chapel service, finishes, most of them leave. Some of them go, do you know what, we're just going to stay and worship a little while longer. 
as they worshipped and prayed together a little longer, the presence of God came in the room, such that many of those who had left were drawn back, such that over the next 12 days, 60,000 people travelled to Asbury to go to the room where they were worshipping. And the stories you read and you hear from people coming out of it were, I walked in and God was there. And people were confessing their sins, people were weeping, people were on the floor, full of peace. They were praying together, they were reading their Bibles. It fundamentally altered the character of the student body of a university. Psalm 23 depicts for us a host who is present. And he is the one who refreshes our souls. My friends, you, you can have a bit of information today which is helpful for you. And it might help you make choices in your life which bring refreshment to your soul. Not worrying about the things that God will take care of. But you can also encounter the one who brings refreshment to our souls. There are places in the world talked about as thin places. You heard that phrase before? It's often used by Anglicans, often used by the monastic tradition, places that people have prayed in at length, worshipped in at length, where it feels like heaven is closer than it does elsewhere, where it feels like God is present. You may have walked into some of them. Often there's a National Trust sign at the door of some of them now. You walk into Fountains Abbey and you go, wow, worship happened here for hundreds of years. When I was a student, my friend had a basement room, which the landlord, for some reason, hadn't really transformed into usable space. Student landlords convert everything. If you can fit a bed in it, it's a bedroom. But my friend's house, they had a basement, and we would get there together once or twice a week, worship and pray. As we walked into that space after a while, it didn't take us three songs to get going. I was with a friend just recently, and he was telling me about how things that happened in that room, prophetic words that came to him in that room, encounters he had with God in that room, have fundamentally shaped his career as a result. Yeah, he met God. Yes, they were great time with friends and it was really fun. But more than that, he met God. The tangible, manifest presence of God. Psalm 23 finishes in verse 6 with these words, Surely your goodness and love will follow me. Here's the thing about goodness and love. You can know about goodness and love, but they only really become goodness and love when you experience them. When someone says to you, I know my parents loved me, but you realize they're using their will to know that their parents loved them. Maybe that's your story this morning. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. Goodness and love are characteristics of God. And we can't separate the characteristics of God from God himself. The psalmist here is saying, surely you follow me all the days of my life. Surely you are with me 
all the days of my life. God is with the psalmist. The shepherd who provides, the companion who protects, the host who is present. My friends, if you feel like your soul might need some renewal this morning, let me suggest to you that what you don't need is learning. You probably don't even need the people around you, though they are a gift from God, and that's another preach. It's he who refreshes our souls. And the thing about the presence of God is, you can't conjure it up. I wish I could pull a box out, open the door in the presence of God, fill the room. That would be a pretty good party trick. You can only ever really put yourself in the way of the presence of God. You can put yourself out of the way of the presence of God and you can put yourself in the way of the presence of God. And I just, I don't quite know what we're going to do in the next minus two minutes. But I just want to invite us to put ourselves in the way of the presence of God. To put ourselves in the way of his tangible manifest presence. Often, in moments like this, British people, Americans too, we tend to quiet and we go super silent and reverent and holy. But there are many other things that can happen in the presence of God. The markings of the presence of God are our peace, but they're also jubilation. It is stillness, but it's also grace that flows and washes over us. It is a still heart, but it's also a free heart. And so I don't want you to act the part this morning and go, right, we're going to encounter the presence of God. What that means is I have to adopt the universal receiving position and look like I'm having some deep quiet, peaceful encounter. If you read the Psalms, you'll realize that most of them encounter God by shouting at him. Many of them encounter God by singing joyfully to him. As we read the New Testament, we find Acts chapter 4, where they're calling on God to move, and the room they're in is shaken. They're filled with the Spirit. And their lives are changed. I'm not trying to conjure anything up. There are places you can go and people will do that for you. I'm just saying, please don't act the part that you think you have to act right now. We put ourselves in the way of God, not act a role. And so I wonder if we could finish with a song of some kind, Rob. That all right? Great, thanks. If you insist. I can invite you to, if you're able, do whatever you'd like to do to put yourself in the way of God. Maybe you'd like to stand. Maybe you'd like to kneel. Maybe you'd like to lie. Maybe you'd like to dance. Maybe you want to move. There is plenty of space down the sides. At the front, find your place.
But let's position ourselves to put ourselves in the way of God this morning. He's the one who refreshes our soul. We will never encounter him and come out of it tired. We will never encounter him and come out of it feeling abandoned. God has no dispensable sheep. The story is he goes looking for the one when he's got 99. Why don't you just put the words of this verse on your lips? He refreshes my soul. You can personalize it. You refresh my soul. Father God, we come before you this morning so aware that we live in a frantic, untamable, destructive, enslaving world. For many of us, our souls feel shriveled up like raisins. Many Many of us have lost connection with our soul. We feel like a bit in a machine rather than a living, breathing person. But Lord, we join the psalmist's cry. And we say, Lord, we believe this to be true. You restore my soul. And so we surrender to your provision. We rest in your protection. We put ourselves in the way of your presence our host, the one we come to. Pray, Spirit of God, would you reveal Jesus in our midst. So move our hearts with a revelation of what he's like, that we would leave this place, yes, refreshed, but renewed, made new for the good of the world around us. Holy Spirit, come. Come.